take that Bible and open it to uh, the book of Jonah as we continue in our series there on exiting through that wonderful book, the book of Jonah, and we find ourselves really coming to the close of uh, chapter 2 this morning. This book goes so quick. We'll be into chapter 3 already next week, so we're concluding half of this exposition. We read this morning already from Jonah chapter 2 on Jonah's prayer, and we've noted all along that the purpose of the book of Jonah, of the many purposes, is to teach Israel that God loves other nations than just their own. That's for sure. He doesn't just love the nation of Israel. And I think it also teaches us that he loves other nations, not just our own as well. And I think we're well aware of that. I mean, Jonah's sense of what, in his own mind, his own sense of justice could not be reconciled with God's sense of mercy. I think Jonah thought, how could God commission me to preach to a people that I hate. He was called to preach to the Assyrians or to the, to the country of Nineveh. How can God's mercy be extended, Jonah thought, to uh, a wicked people that threatened the very existence of Israel? That's Jonah's ba- battle. Even though all along, it, we would all agree that Israel received mercy from God. It's just that they didn't think that that mercy should go out to others, especially their arch enemy. Dan Fuller, a theologian, said this very powerfully, I thought. He said, God delights far more in his mercy than in his wrath. It's an interesting statement on the character of God, that he delights far more in his mercy than in his wrath. And I thought to myself, with some people, it seems to be the opposite. And so, in order to show us the priority of his mercy that must take place in our lives, he often does it against the backdrop of his wrath. And this is the teaching of, our, of the scripture, is it not? I mean, just think of your salvation at least as it's painted in the New Testament. Thinking of Paul in the book of Ephesians when he said, we all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. But then you remember it says, but God being rich in what? Mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins and in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. But very clearly in the book of Ephesians, it says, but God being rich in mercy. Of course, I think for those of you who have been in Christ for some time, you remember what Paul said in the book of Titus in Titus 3, 5, that he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his, what? Mercy. God comes to us. The picture here in Scripture is in our misery and in our lostness, destined for wrath, and he gives us mercy. His mercy, if you will, reached down in our lowest condition and in our lost condition, and it saved us. I'm thinking of Paul 
And maybe we had some of this going on on Thursday in Thanksgiving. Think about what filled Paul's heart when he said, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service even though I formally... Paul said, was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet, Paul says, I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. It is a trustworthy statement, Paul said in 1 Timothy 1, deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am, what? Foremost of all chief of all. He said, yet for this reason, I found mercy so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. God's mercy. The story is told of a mother who sought from Napoleon the pardon of her son. And the emperor said that it was the man's second offense and that justice demanded his death. I don't ask for justice, said the mother. I plead for mercy. But, said the emperor, he does not deserve mercy. Sir, cried the mother, it would not be mercy if he deserved it, and mercy is all I ask. Well then, said the emperor, I will show mercy, and her son was spared really becomes a picture of what God has done for us. I'm thinking of the apostle Peter, and you know that scripture maybe well in 1-3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Our salvation is a reflection of God's mercy. I'm thinking of Paul in Romans chapter 9, which we'll get there in men's equippers in the month of January, when he said, Jacob I've loved, Esau I hated, but what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And then Paul said, so then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. I mean, when you, when you really begin to look at the biblical contours of mercy, it excludes any ideal of merit on human beings, on the part of human beings. It is solely, is our salvation based on the mercy of God. Mercy is his nature. It's bound up in who God is. And the book of Jonah here speaks of God's mercy to the wicked nation of Nineveh. But you know that at this point, the prophet would have none of it. This prophet, as we've studied, refused God's call. He refused to declare God's mercy. And so in an utter act of rebellion, he runs to the end of the earth, or at least he catches a ride to the end of the earth, and God pursues him, does he not, to the end of the earth. And in chapter 1, that great fish swallowed him up, and there as he's sinking to the bottom, he prays. And that's where we find ourselves in Jonah chapter 2. Jonah chapter 2 is Jonah's prayer. I want to just identify that. Look at the beginning of 2.1. It says, Then Jonah 
prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. And so there's a little marker for us when we're studying the Bible. It is his prayer. He's praying in the belly of that fish. I say that because I've, as I was studying this last two weeks, I uh, read some things that never ever talked about Jonah's prayer. It talked about his conflict, and certainly his conflict is there, but it is a prayer of Jonah. And so he's praying. In fact, look at 2 2. He says there, I called out to the Lord. That's a prayer. Out of my distress, and it says, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. He's praying. In fact, look at verse 7. While my life was fainting away, the text says he remembered the Lord. And it says in verse 7, my prayer came to you into your holy temple. And so it is a chapter on prayer. Now, as as we turn to Jonah chapter 2, this chapter is often skipped in terms of the book's focus. In fact, if I took a survey before we got there, you could probably tell me something for sure about chapter 1. You might even be able to tell me about chapter 3. He goes into Nineveh and he preaches. You might even tell me about chapter 4 where he was angry and so forth, and he went outside the city. But I often wonder if people would say, ah, chapter 2 on his prayer. But I want you to know I'm intrigued by this prayer and intrigued by its content as well as what, uh, I would say this, what appears potentially to be missing from his prayer. And if you ever wonder, well, what was Jonah thinking when he was inside the fish? Well, it's right here. His prayer in chapter 2 enables us to understand his personal biography inside the great fish. And so we begin to enumerate a couple of the principles in prayer. And I noted for you a couple weeks ago, three of those. And we've looked there in your bulletin, in your notes, that we looked at the first two. We said, first, prayer is a cry of distress in the midst of overwhelming pressure. I mean, we just have to recognize that too, too. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. I mean, take it for what it is. He's in the fish, and he's sinking, kind of gulp, gulp, gulp. I mean, he's going down to the bottom, right? And out of his distress, he calls out in his distress. And we took some time to see that thought throughout the Scripture that prayer is just a cry. Prayer is out out of the pressure, out of overwhelming pressure. He cries out to the Lord, and you see this all over the Scripture. He says again, out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and here you heard my voice. And we took some time to look at that. But secondly, we noted that prayer is a recognition or is the recognition of God's merciful discipline. And when Jonah was in the belly of that great fish, check out the personal pronouns. Look again at 2-3. For you cast me into the deep. Look at the end of verse 3. All your waves and your billows passed over me. He recognizes in the midst of his prayer, God's discipline. In other words, he, he comes to his senses somewhat, and he recognizes that he's, he's where he is because of God's discipline. 
He speaks of your waves and your billows that have passed over me. In fact, it's so emblematic of other Psalms like Psalm 42 verse 7 where it says, Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. And so Jonah, as he's in this great fish, not only cries out in distress in the midst of pressure, but secondly, he recognizes God's merciful discipline. In fact, look at, again at the text in 2.5. He, he's, he's telling you what happened. The waters closed in over me to take my life. He said in verse 5, the deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head and so forth. At the root of the mountains, I went down to the land. In other words, he's picturing this water closing him in. He's a prisoner of the sea. But it gets worse, doesn't it? Look at 2.6. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought my life up from the pit. He speaks of those roots, the deepest extremities of the mountains. He speaks of the bars, and those were both expressions of the underworld and of the ancient Near Eastern literature and even Old Testament imagery that points to the power of death. And he's, and he's, he's picturing his life as, as dying, and, and he's picturing as he goes down, if you will, enclosed, and he's in prison, if you will, and it's captivating him and putting him into captivity, and he's really at the bottom. And at the moment of his greatest darkness and greatest despair, God breaks through to rescue him. Look at verse 2-6, at the end of 2-6. Yet, he says, you've brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. And this leads us right into this third and last feature that prayer is praise for God's saving nature. Prayer is praise for God's saving nature. Now, some would say that this prayer of gratitude for deliverance, and that's how they look at it exclusively. But I see something more than only gratitude. I think it is gratitude, but there's something, something more there. And so what I want to do in this third principle here is get a first look at his prayer and then a second look, okay? So let's take that first look that his praise you're taking notes, is expressed in four specific ways, okay? His praise is expressed in four specific ways. Number one, Jonah praises God for his rescue. It's right there. You you can see it in verse 6. I went down to the land, verse 6, whose bars enclosed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God, He praises God's power to rescue him, if you will, to redeem him. And I think when he speaks here in verse 6, you brought my life up from the pit, you understand he's not talking about salvation there. He's speaking about God's miraculous intervention of the fish. Now, you understand that. It's not that the fish was appointed in judgment for him. The fish was appointed in a divine act of mercy And he said, Lord, you've brought my life up from the pits. The God from whom Jonah felt banished reached down and saved him from an imminent death. It 
kind of reminds me of Isaiah 59.1 where it says that the arm of the Lord is not too short for this. And it's as though God reaches out his arm into the sea and pulls him out. And, and again, as, he, as he, he's praising God for his rescue. And it reminds me, does it not of you, of Psalm 139, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, he says, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me. And so Jonah, as he's sensing that God's going to rescue him, praises God for his rescue. I want you to note something in 2.6 that I think is interesting. Look down there. He says, you've brought my life from the pit. And then this phrase, oh, Lord, my God. That little phrase, it's the first time in the book of Jonah that Jonah confesses God as his Lord and his God. And so I would say it this way, the prodigal returns. And so here he praises God for his rescue. But secondly, okay, he praises God in remembrance. I mean, this is elements of prayer for his rescue. And then secondly, he praises God in remembrance. Look at 2.7. He says, when my life was fainting away, he said, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. So here he's praising God in remembrance because Jonah's prayer reached, if you will, the heart of God. It's actually a great encouragement. It reached the heart of God. It reminds me of statements like this in Psalm 88 two: let my prayer come before you. The psalmist prays in 88 two: incline your ear to my cry. And so this is what Jonah did. He says, why my life's fainting away. He said, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you. It reminds me of Psalm 102 verse 1 where the psalmist said, hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my help and let my cry for help come to you. Now now look at verse 7 there. It says this, let my prayer come to you into your holy temple. Now, we looked at that before, and he's prayed that before about the temple. We just said that oftentimes when they were describing God's person and describing God's presence, they would describe his person and presence in the temple. It certainly wasn't, though, that he can be contained in the temple. But when they talked about it, they knew that his glory dwelled there. So what is Jonah is doing is he's fainting away. He remembers the Lord. He prays to the Lord. And he prays to the Lord in this expression, in your holy temple. God, it's where you're residing. Let my prayer come up to your person. You know, I think it's very fascinating when you look at that phrase there, let it come into your holy temple, because in 2 Samuel chapter 22, in verses 5 through 7, David was running from his enemies, and he's running from King Saul, but he pens praise in 2 Samuel 22. Listen to the phrasing of what David penned. 
He said there, and he was going to go on to praise the Lord. He said, the waves of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. And in my distress, David said, I called upon the Lord. Yes, I cried to my God. And David said, from my temple, he heard my voice and my cry for help came into his ears. That's the point here. He's crying out of distress. He's crying out to God. And he's now going to praise God, if you will. He's going to praise him for his rescue. And he's going to remember God. In fact, it reminds me of Psalm 18.6. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried to God for help. And he heard my voice out of his temple. And my cry for help came before him and his ears. So there's great encouragement here, is there not? That in the midst of seasons of great discomfort, of great distress, of loss of life, that you can pray to God and he hears you and he understands. So he's praising God for his rescue. He's praising God in remembrance. In fact, look at this remembrance in verse 8. He said, those, it seems to be a, a bit abrupt, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. He expresses here, does Jonah, that those who worship idols will discover in times of distress and in times of trouble how impotent those idols really are. I mean, I think maybe as Jonah expresses this here, what idol could deliver was so great a deliverance as the God of heaven, at least in Jonah 1.9, who made the land and the sea. Now, that last phrase there in verse 8, forsake their hope of steadfast love. I think the thought is this, that those who worship idols forsake the grace that could be theirs. And so as he's in the midst of this fish, he speaks of these idols. And once you, you, you know, if you cling to those idols, you're going to forsake the grace that could be theirs. So Jonah praises God for his rescue. He praises God in remembrance. Thirdly, can we say it this way? He praises God by taking responsibility. Look at verse 10 or verse 9, excuse me. He said, but I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And so he praises God by taking responsibility that I, he says, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. So he's about ready to be delivered here, and he gives thanks for being delivered from the jaws of death, if you will. He sounds like the sailors, does he not? Look back in chapter 1 and verse 16. After they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea in 115, the sea ceased from its raging. Verse 16, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. 
And similarly here in 2 verse 9, as he's about to be delivered and as he understands and senses God's rescue, he with a voice of thanksgiving is going to make a sacrifice. What I vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And so he praised God by taking responsibility. And even in verse 9, he he gives praise with a voice of thanksgiving. And you see this in other scriptures as well. In fact, look at that last phrase in verse 9. He says there, salvation belongs to the Lord. It is a grand statement. I mean, the Lord delivered Jonah. No one else is the thought. The idols didn't deliver him. It was the Lord. And so salvation and the ideal of deliverance belongs to the Lord. And then finally, he praises him. Here's the fourth component. He praises God for his release. You know the account. He praises God for his release. The Lord, it says in the ESV, spoke to the fish. And I think in the New American Standard, it says the Lord commanded the fish and You remember this one in verse 10? And it, the great fish, chapter 1, vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. (laughs) Can you just picture that for a moment? Where it was, we don't know. It's my belief that I think he put him at Joppa. As he was running to get that boat to take it to the furthest corner of the known world in Joppa as he buys that fare and goes down into the boat. It's my thinking that God was so sovereign to bring the wind, so sovereign to hurl the waves, so sovereign in appointing the fish at the right place at the right time. Now, as he goes three days, three nights in the belly of this fish, And as Jonah recognizes God, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. I believe he released him right back on the shore again, maybe where he was dropped off. Now, the text is so clear. I mean, you say, well, what does that mean, vomited? Well, I think you understand that's what it means. You say, well, what does it mean in the Hebrew? Well, it means exactly what you think it means in the Hebrew and the English as well, okay? And I just thought to myself, different methods he could have used. He could have just beamed him up, you know, and there he was in Nineveh. And we'll pick this up next week, but, but he doesn't just beam him up. You might think in your mind and heart, maybe he could have just put him on a chariot of fire, but he doesn't. Maybe you think he could have just caught him up in a whirlwind and took him to Nineveh. No, the text is clear. He just vomited Jonah out again on the dry land. And he's on the shore again. Praise the Lord. But one author said it this way. He's on the shore again. He said, quote, but he's not there as a tragic figure covered with suffering. He's no heroic figure covered with glory. The writer said he is a ridiculous figure covered with shrimp cocktail and tuna tartare. And there he is. There he is. And so here's prayer. It's a cry of distress, okay? It's a recognition of God's uh, discipline. And thirdly, it's it's praise for God's nature, saving nature. And then the question that that we would ask here, is this all there is to his prayer? And, and, and I just think when I read this prayer, I just think something's missing in it. 
You say, well, Scott, it's the Scripture. Well, I know it's the Scripture. There's nothing wrong with the Scripture. You understand my heart. But there seems to be something incomplete in his prayer. And I've really tried to get my mind around this for about two weeks, you know, because Pastor Demo was preaching last week. So I have suffered now two weeks without being able to, to get this out. And the more I read and the more I thought about this and the more I prayed and the more I looked at this prayer, I just thought there seems to be something missing. Now, don't miss my heart on this. There's no question that Jonah prayed in the belly of that great fish. There's no, prayer, there's no question that God's working in his heart. But, but it seems to be more emphasized on God than Jonah. There's no question that God has tracked him down and sent him on the right path. There's no question that Jonah prays, and then I would say it this way, the Lord answered, and when he answered, Jonah is released. But, and, and this is just the common thought. It's a great prayer, people would say. It's a model prayer. And they set it up as a model prayer, and I don't think it's a model. I think it's Jonah's prayer in the great fish. Hermeneutically, that's all the text is saying is that he prayed. But most commentaries, and when you say, Scott, how many do you mean? I mean virtually all of them, maybe except 1%, say stuff like this. They praise his prayer, and they use it as a model of prayer in distress. Here's what one said. He said the turning point, and, and even, that, even that statement, I just had to stop. Is, is this a turning point? I, I mean, you well, say, yeah, Scott, because when you go into chapter 3, he walks into Nineveh. Okay, I understand that, but I had to stop there just for a second. He said the turning point, quote, in Jonah's life comes at the very depths of the pursuit of his disobedience. This writer said final descent into the ocean depths would have, would have been his last. And here's what the writer said. Had there not been a change of heart before he was cast overboard, but it was not until all the way down, he finally stripped of his own buoyant sense of self-sufficiency, he said, was deliverance possible? So as he sinks to the bottom, he sinks to the lowest, and God hears that and spits him out, but I, I think I just, I underlined that. It was not, but it had not been had there not been a change of heart. And I thought to myself, does he really have a change of heart? Another writer said this. Jonah was stating, speaking, quoting here, that he was grateful for the mercy God had shown him. Okay? He was alive even though he did not deserve to be. Okay? And it said this then. Jonah had experienced the grace of God and he knew it and said so eloquently and at length. I think it was that phrase, he experienced the grace of God and he knew it. My question to you is, does he know it? I mean, what's, 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 what's going on here in chapter 2? And, and a scholar whom I have immense respect for Henry Morris, and you know Henry Morris is the man who has written uh, prolifically on creation and so forth, and is a fine scholar. 
said, quote, one can only imagine the feelings that rushed over Jonah. And I'm quoting, ah, joy, thanksgiving, amazement, whatever he may have felt. Here's what Morris said. He surely was not in a rebellious mood any longer. Really? I mean, this is a question when you get to this prayer. Morris said he was fully determined to do whatever God said. And once he got to Nineveh, there he was, no longer of a mind to run away from God and his word. Uh, Yeah, I, I think somewhat. But when he said he surely was not in a rebellious mood any longer, I, I'm not so sure. And, and just, and I could go on. I, I shouldn't though. Another said this, he is rescued, quote, and everything becomes God. Really? Everything becomes God? Phil Johnson, tremendous thinker and scholar whom I would usually never differ with, said that, Jonah's repentance was seen when he looked to the temple and when he made vows or promised vows and made a sacrifice to God. And he uses that word repentance. Now, the the question, you say, well, Scott, I, okay, what's the question then? I just want to know then, how do you reconcile Jonah chapter 2 with Jonah 3 and 4. This is what's concerned me. I mean, if this is a model of prayer, and he walked on to Nineveh, and he went and preached a sermon, unbelievably, prophet's dream, that contained only five words. So what are the five words? Well, look over in chapter 3, verse, um, well, it's in 3, 4. He began to go into the city, go on a day's journey, and he called out, here's... Here's his, his sermon. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. You say, Scott, that's seven. I know, but in the Hebrew, it's five, okay? That's his message there, okay? That's all he did. And then you'll see there it says, and the people, verse five, believe God and they called for a fast and they put on sackcloth, the greatest of them to the least of them. And you'll go to the end of the chapter and the people repented. I'm just trying to, to fathom and wonder, what do you do with chapter 4, though, in light of his prayer? What's chapter 4? Look at it. They all got saved, and it said in 4.1, it displeased Jonah, what? Exceedingly. And he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Verse 3, therefore now, O Lord, take my, what? Life for me, for it is better for me uh, to die than to, what? Live. Amazing. Amazing. So, So watch this. There's a first look at his prayer. But then there's a second look at Jonah's prayer. And in the second look, I think you would agree with me, Jonah has not arrived spiritually, and his prayer, I think, reflects that. In fact, let me make this bold statement. His deliverance from the fish 
in light of the entire book, appears to be a bit self-serving, <laughs> okay? You say, well, why is that, Scott? You just read it as you did in chapter 2. Well, here's why. Here's why I think it. Nowhere does he ever confess his sin. You ever notice that? Nowhere in chapter 2. At one, not at one point does he confess his sin. At no place in his prayer is there repentance. You say, well, and I'll, I'll, I'll touch on this. You say, well, there appears to be, when he talks about vain idols, there appears to be, when he says with a voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you, I understand his words, I just haven't seen it in his life. I think what you have in chapter 2 is Jonah acknowledging his deliverance from his danger. And I just say this in chapter 2, and you'd have to agree with this. There's nothing confessed about his racism. I mean, you've got a, a prophet who's a racist. You say, well, Scott, you shouldn't say that. Well, I'm, that's what's in Jonah. He doesn't like Nineveh. He doesn't like the Assyrian people. He'd rather see them condemned and judged and God's wrath. He doesn't want them to get mercy. That's why he fled all the way to the end of the known world. He goes to the southern tip of Spain. And at not one place in his prayer do I see that. In fact, you remember that even at the closing of chapter 1, with the admission of God as creator of the sea, creator of the land, rather than repenting, right, and rather than turning the boat around, he opts to have the mariners throw him overboard. I'll just die. And then you can see in chapter 4, we'll identify him as the pouting prophet. And in in a similar way, in chapter 2, verse 4, and I don't want to push this too far. He acknowledges God's sovereignty, does he not? You cast me into the sea. You banished me. But nowhere does he mention his own sin. Nowhere does he even own, does he mention his own role in the events that landed him in this predicament. I mean, I think there's a sense there back in verse 12 of chapter 1. He said, if you hurl me into the sea, the sea will quiet down. For I know it is because of me this great tempest has come upon you. He does acknowledge that. What could he do? But he doesn't repent. And my point is, he glosses over any personal responsibility for his sin. It is interestingly absent in his prayer. I mean, one would think that repentance would be forthcoming. Let me just put it this clearly. In light of his utter disregard for God's word, you would think that he'd repent somewhere in his failure to obey his divine calling. But absent in chapter 2 is any acknowledgement of guilt, any acknowledgement of repentance. He never confesses his sin. He seems to affirm one's role for his brush with death except his. He affirms everybody's role except for his. I mean, it's God's breakers, God's billows that pass over him. Your breakers, your billows. And he was, listen, thankful, I I agree, for his deliverance from the fish, 
But let me put it this way in light of the whole book. He's downright angry regarding the, the Ninevites' deliverance from God's wrath. Is that fair? I'm just trying to understand, how do you read chapter 2 in light of chapter 4? You've got to see the whole book, and we'll certainly get to 4. In fact, Jonah's, let me put it this way, deepest convictions are diametrically opposed to God's gracious character. Are yours? I mean, they were. Now, the other question I have, and I'm just begging this a little bit, what do you do with uh, chapter 2, verse 8? Remember that? I mean, I'm just, I'm not sure quite. It's really hard to to kind of exact what that means, but he, he speaks of those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. He assumes his relationship with God is healthy and those who worship idols, i.e. the sailors, are lifeless when in reality the very opposite has been revealed in God's word in the book of Jonah. Listen, while Jonah advocates total dependence in prayer, and the forsaking of idols, his history shows that he was the one who fled God and forsook God. I mean, it's, it's irony here. He's talking about those who regard idols when he's got an idol in his own heart, and he fled from the mercy of God. In fact, the irony is incredible. As Jonah flees from God to prevent Nineveh's salvation, the mariners have abandoned their little gods and embraced God Yahweh. He condemns the Gentiles for their idols, all the while God delivers the Gentiles from destruction in chapter 1. Then Jonah promises to make vows and sacrifice to Yahweh with a voice of thanksgiving, which is the very action the mariners of the sailors have already done as they worship the true God in 116. I mean, there's just a little bit, and I don't want to read too much into this, but his comparison to the idols reminds me of the Pharisees' prayer in Luke 18. God, I thank you, thee that I'm not like this, like other men, extortionists, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. Remember, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. And remember, do you not, that the tax gatherer, collector, went, was not even willing to lift up his eyes, but beating his breast said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The Bible's really clear in Luke 18. This man went to his house justified. I mean, you'd ask the question, how can a disobedient prophet who refuses to obey God's call pray a prayer regarding the vanity of idols when he himself has disobeyed God from the very beginning of the book? Okay, so what's a few takeaways? What, what What do you do with this prayer? Well, this is meant to encourage you, okay? God, number one, was very patient with an imperfect prophet And I am glad he is with me as well. Are you not? I mean, I just think he's so kind. I'm not trying to get on Jonah. I just want to tell you that he was so patient with an imperfect prophet. And I'm just glad that he's patient with me, an imperfect believer. Listen, let me say it this way. Jonah was a long way from what he should be. And the Lord was not finished with him and the Lord is not finished with what? With you. I mean, I find hope in this. He didn't give up on this guy. But I I assure you this, it's not about Jonah. It's about God. 
It's not about what Jonah repented of in the belly of the fish. It's about God who so loved 120,000 people who didn't know their right hand from their left hand. It's a book about God, and God's going to accomplish his his perfect will within the category of his mercy beyond just the nation of Israel, and he was patient with this prophet. I mean, this is the work of a lifetime, so be encouraged. You say, well, pastor, I've not arrived. Well, neither have I. So I don't see the person of God perfectly. Well, neither did Jonah. You say, there's aspects of God's character that I want to understand more. Well, so there is with me, and God is ever so patient with this prophet. Let me say this. You say, was his prayer real then, Scott? Yes. Were there elements of his prayer that were right? Yes. Does it reveal some absences? I think so. And God's not done with them yet. But don't look at Jonah as the guy to give the glory to. God gets the glory. This prophet's running, and I don't think he acknowledged that. And I think because he doesn't acknowledge that, when God saves him in chapter 3, he's really angry in chapter 4 because it was like, God, I knew you would do that. He's mad. I, I mean, you think it's the prophet's dream, and he's just so frustrated. And then secondly, let me say this. God's mercy and salvation extends to all kinds of people. You know that. We've been saying that. I mean, I don't think the prophet understood this truth, and hopefully after his mission, he grasped the implication of that truth, and maybe we can talk to him in heaven. Are there a certain amount of people, some people you want to talk to in heaven? I'd really like to talk to Jonah. I'd like to know where he got it or if he got it. I I mean, but his mercy goes to, I I say it this way, to all kinds of, of people. Listen, Jonah had no right to object or even restrict salvation to Israel, especially in the light that he himself and the nation of Israel are recipients of that mercy. Do you believe? In other words, what I was trying to say there is how does he object to God's mercy given to them when he himself? personally experienced mercy, and the nation of Israel personally experienced his mercy. I mean, Jonah views God as unconditionally committed to Israel, despite their rebellious nature, all the while he would adamantly want Nineveh to experience God's wrath and judgment. And when he does not get his own way, he goes into a prophetic pout. And so, beloved, we need to recognize God's mercy. He's concerned, is he not, for all mankind. He's not just concerned for his people. And in the same way, listen, he pursued us to bring us to himself. And the hound of heaven came after us and redeemed us when we were not pursuing him. Praise God. I was just thinking as we were singing earlier, you know, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I've told you that many times. I was a full-on pagan full on. And somebody in God's grace shared with my family. And then I heard of the person of Christ at the first time, I think when I was eight years old. And and I just look and say, it's nothing that I give credit to. It's all God's mercy. And listen, if you've received that mercy, you, then you need to be merciful to other people. And what a great opportunity coming up at Angel Tree. You just got to come love on those people. Come love on those grandmas. So what do you mean grandmas? All the grandmas who are taking care of all those kids because the father or mother is in prison and can't be there. 
And we just need to come love on them because God loves those people and loves those families. And his mercy goes not just to us and not just to your family, but to other families. And let me just say this. Thank you for being part of that. All the gifts I think were given, all the gifts were taken. A number of you want to serve, but we just, that ought to be our heart because we've experienced it. Philip Keller said this, and I close with this. The only real practical measure of my apprehension for the goodness and mercy of God to me, he said, is this, is the extent to which I am in turn prepared to show goodness and mercy to others. You'll tell me that Keller's saying that you've experienced mercy when you want to give that mercy to others. Amen? Jonah has much to learn. You say, well, Scott, what happened? Well, look at chapter 3, verse 1. It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against its message that I tell you. You say, well, what happened? Well, you got to come back next week, all right?